the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Innovators Network. Welcome to the Heart of Innovation. 60 minutes that can save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org, in partnership with Abbott. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Well, individuals with chronic kidney disease have an increased risk of developing limb-threatening plaque buildup in their leg arteries that restricts blood flow, a disorder known as peripheral artery disease, or PAD. That's why Dialysis Access Solutions president and patient advocate Terry Litchfield, who fought alongside her husband, Bill, a dialysis-dependent CKD patient for more than 50 years, is sinking her teeth into prevention efforts and advances in treatment for those with advanced disease that tends to settle in the calf and foot arteries, which are tougher to tackle. We're going to talk with Terry about her entire journey to trying to have an impact on CKD and PAD. But first, I just want to let you know that Dr. John Phillips is in the middle of a complex case over at Ohio Health. He's going to try and join us as soon as he is done saving the piggies of a uh, very lucky patient um, over there in Ohio. And so when he jumps in, um, we will definitely include him in the conversation. But meantime, it is ladies' conversation. Terry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kim, for having me this evening. We really uh, you know, appreciate you coming in. Our conversation yesterday preparing for the show was just incredible. I think we talked for a couple hours. <laughs> I'm inspired so much by your passion for PAD, and I want to get to how you developed that passion for PAD, but I assume it started when you met your husband, who was a CKD patient. It, it really did. Um, I was right out of college. I went to work for the National Kidney Foundation. And I was at community services. I did events. But one of the things I really want to start with is, you know, kidney diseases, CKD, chronic kidney disease, is a real devastating illness. But everyone on this call has a part of chronic kidney disease and PAD and chronic kidney disease because we're taxpayers. And... Every $100 we pay in taxes, $1 goes to kidney dialysis programs. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, yes. There are less than 1% of the patients who have Medicare 
and and Medicare covers any kidney disease patient, no matter if they're 65 or over, they can Hmm. be less than 65. But they're less than 1% of the patients, and they consume 7% of the because they, you know, they have dialysis. And really the way um, that they were connected is two ways, and why I've always been interested in saving legs and making sure patients are walking around started with the dialysis world. But really, um, when I was a newlywed, I worked at Texas Heart Institute, And those were the days when um, there were a lot of amputations, but we were trying um, what are called bypass surgeries to try and get blood flow down to patients' legs that didn't have adequate blood flow. And to me, it was a really, really impactive disease. And the surgery where the surgical incisions went up and down the leg and, right. and they really didn't heal well and often ended up with amputations. But amputations for me is the final failure in this whole equation. In um, the dialysis population, we have over 10% of our patients start dialysis with some type of amputation. So you go into a dialysis unit. Yeah. Yes. And there are many... Um, walkers and wheelchairs, patients coming in on stretchers, and a lot of the dialysis population amputation epidemic is related to three-quarters of the dialysis population has diabetes. And so that same disease that often affected and caused their kidney failure actually causes uh, the inability of of, of really to, to keep all of the ves- vessels. So it's vessels that feed kidneys and hearts and, you know, legs. Um, and so that's, they enter into dialysis with a number of them having amputations. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's such a big problem. Uh, the kidney disease benchmarks called KDOKI, the practice guidelines in this country state very clearly when a patient starts dialysis, should be assessed for absence or presence of peripheral artery disease because we know we know that if they end up with an amputation it is almost a death sentence they they it is very rare for a patient to survive past several years on dialysis after a, a, tra- a non-traumatic amputation and it's just it and so always um I would ask questions about why um, why so many amputations. I understood that, but why so many more amputations? And and in in that time, they didn't do in the dialysis units any foot screening or any testing for it. And so, um, to me, it's you know eighty percent of the dialysis population. It is estimated has some form of peripheral artery disease, 80%. Because and can we go were- back to the basic, because we have a few questions that are already coming in, and one of them is just, can you explain further? I know you're not a doctor, you're not a clinician, but can you just go down to the basics of CKD, chronic kidney disease, and get into why in which these um, patients are more apt to uh, ad- advancing to... Uh, gaining atherosclerosis in their arteries. 
So, uh, first of all, it um, end-stage CKD, end-stage kidney disease, is a disease uh, typically of the elderly, so average 64 years of age. And so as we age, we have um, atherosclerosis. You know, we have we get, we do get often plaque in our in our vessels, but right. it, it does get um, worsened by smoking history. So about a quarter of the dialysis population were, are either smokers or were smokers at some time. And then you add in three quarters of them having diabetes, uh, which worsens any macro, macrovascular disease. Um, you have almost a trifecta effect. And so they, they have already um, disease states. Hypertension is the other, the second most common reason for patients end up on dialysis. Um, and so these are primary, primary causes from other diseases. High blood pressure and diabetes are by far the most common reasons patients end up on dialysis. Either they didn't know they had high blood pressure or diabetes, or they didn't adhere to some of the treatment regimens. Um, and and still, in this day and time, as much as we hear about dialysis, um, many patients start dialysis after a visit to the emergency room when they feel quite ill, and it's found that their kidneys are totally shut down. Wow, so that's even a failure in and of itself where doctors should be working with patients or is it that it's more on the patient and the patient's not compliant? Well, or a this, little bit of both. It's a little bit of both, but it, what we do see in the um, in the renal data system that unfortunately um, poor patients and patients um, from minorities tend to have later presentation of kidney failure, likely as a result of either um, they're in areas where there aren't specialists or they may not have the insurance, sometimes economic barriers to their obtaining care. So if you don't have insurance, for example, um, you may not go to the doctor. So if a patient is diligent, they get diagnosed early with chronic kidney disease and they're compliant with, let's say, medications, their diet and their exercise regimen, is it possible to avoid peripheral artery disease in your experience? Um, Yes and no. It's also even able to slow progression of kidney disease. There are a lot of new drugs out that can slow progression. um, And if you get early diagnosis... Um, the peripheral artery disease information is quite overwhelming. If you start with a patient who has early peripheral artery disease and you get them in a walking program right, and you get them in the right medication that actually um, helps lower the cholesterol in their blood and you keep monitoring them, you can actually, uh, there's some quite good literature about you can reverse the effects of peripheral artery disease when it's in its earlier stages. As a matter of fact, Medicare several years ago added as a Medicare benefit supervised exercise therapy for PAD. So a patient That's when it's available, right? That's is there's so few facilities that 
many have the cardio rehab programs, but very few have that set program. I have to say, I agree with you. And the pandemic took away many of the centers that did exist. And then we still have, and I'm going to talk about, I'm a patient advocate, patient barriers to supervised exercise therapy. So when you consider a patient, if they're like in, if they're in a Medicare Advantage plan, um, and even if they're in Medicare, they have co-pays. So right. they, they have to often take the bus and walk, their legs already hurt, and then they have to pay the bus, they have to pay the copay, and then they have to travel back home and take the bus again. And this is several times a week for a period of six to eight weeks. And so patients don't always have that much money available to go somewhere and watch somebody, um, watch them walk. And coming up right here on The Heart of Innovation, we're going to actually have a solution to those barriers impacting exercise therapy access in just a moment. So stay with us. Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease, or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet, medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment. If PAD is in its advanced stages, your physician may schedule a surgical intervention. Minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow, including cardiovascular system's Diamondback 360 atherectomy system, which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium. It's important to discuss all options with your physician, and if told you have no options, get a second opinion. Take a stand against amputation. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com. That's standagainstamputation.com. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. We are still waiting for Dr. John Phillips to finish up a complex case, hoping he's going to finish before we are done uh, with today's broadcast but you know what saving the piggies is the first priority and that's where he is on the front lines helping a patient at ohio health meantime in studio we have terry litchfield she is the president of dialysis access solutions and she's also a patient advocate for folks with chronic kidney disease who also may have peripheral artery disease those blocked arteries and mainly the leg arteries so um, we were talking before the break about um, ways in which we can actually stall progression of peripheral artery disease, not only in CKD patients, but in all patients, if PAD is caught early. And one of the ways in which we were discussing is through an exercise program. Supervised exercise therapy was approved by Medicare, but it stalled out just a bit over COVID. But in fact, I just was reading a study from Northwestern University um, about the fact that uh, patients saw a more than 50% improvement in their symptoms and walking distance through a home exercise regimen 
versus more than 30% improvement in symptoms and walking distance in a supervised exercise therapy program on a treadmill. And I thought that was interesting because the weight of my heart, Terry, my organization, which supports patients with PAD, has its own home walking therapy program. It's not really supervised per se, um, but it provides accountability because it sends the patient a text every day. And it's a text-based program by which it will, the texts will guide the patient along their walk based on whether they're reporting they have claudication, whether they're reporting that the claudication led them to stop, or whether they're ready to completely stop the program for the day altogether. And they have their own dashboard. They can track their um, walking um, progress. And doctors also have access to their patients' data through that program. So it's kind of interesting. And that was the reason I started that is because for a couple of years, the first couple of years in um, doing The Way to My Heart, we were actually paying the co-pays for patients in Mississippi and um, another couple states in the South um, to actually participate in the program. And then the patient still wouldn't even finish the program. And I almost wonder, because I haven't seen the data yet, for a general supervised exercise therapy program not involved in this study, what the retention rate is. Because um, with cardiac rehab programs, I think they only have a 40 to 50% retention rate in the majority of those programs. Have you seen, any, seen anything in terms of compliance with the set programs for PAD patients? The dropout is quite high. So is only it? about a half of the patients complete um, and there's a whole host of reasons, but a lot of them are logistical, um, but some of them are very real financial. But I like I love the idea of because I think patients. What I really love about remote patient monitoring of anything is it engages the patient because then you're not a passive participant; you're an active participant, and you know you can really change change the dynamics of where you're headed. But it's interesting because I, a lot of the remote monitoring systems are, there's still a heavy burden on the patient. For example, my dad ended up with a blood pressure monitoring system from the VA just the other day. It came in a big box. It had multiple boxes in the middle. Then he had to set up the Bluetooth to it. I mean, and he's 83 years old. <laughs> I mean, while he is more tech savvy than most 80-year-olds, I think, um, he was even struggling with, he was like, are you serious? I have to spend 15 minutes per day monitoring my blood pressure. And then also I received a call today from a, a gentleman who was referred to us by his doctor for our walking program. And our Walking program is so simple. Simple. It's text-based. They get a text every day, and it just walks them through it. And he was like, I don't want to have to hold my phone when I walk. I don't want to have to actually monitor anything. Can I just give you a call, and you can just be on the phone, and I'll walk, and I'll just tell you what I'm doing? I mean, <laughs> they just could not be bothered. Can't we just do it by osmosis? <laughs> What a shame. But, you know, there are things, and I have to say that there are things that a patient can do to help reduce the burden and actually reverse certainly the symptoms of um, peripheral artery disease, which is why there's 
there's really good evidence, which is why um, Medicare chose to cover it. And, and now we have the operational issues of they're just not being utilized and they're not available. Um, you know, and that's a real problem. You know, I always tell patients, I'm like, it was a lot of work getting into it and it's going to be a lot of work getting out. Right. That's true. That's true. And I'm curious, you know, going back to your story and your involvement, you seem to have so much passion, you know, for what you do as an advocate and a, a really great passion for the the um, the subject matter altogether. What really sparked this passion? It's one thing to have a career and to say you started out at the National um, Kidney Institute, I believe, and then you ended up continuing to pursue um it even further at the Texas Institute. But what really drove you forward to really truly immerse yourself into not only the field, but the advocacy aspect of it? Was it simply being alongside your husband in his journey? I think that it was it was a perfect situation. So I worked for the National Kidney Foundation. So I got to help kidney patients every day and I loved it. So I decided to go get a master's in um, public administration, and my master's thesis was rehabilitation in kidney patients. What influences success? And so I interviewed. Um, I worked for National Kidney Foundation, so they gave me a patient list. This is before HIPAA. They gave me numbers and names, and I called these patients because they had been on dialysis in those days. That was a long time. This was the late 70s, more than 10 years. And my husband ended up being the patient I had a a terrible time finding because he was always out working, doing something. And I, I was convinced I had the wrong person, but he was the right person. And so when I met him, I loved his attitude. But he was one of the earliest kidney patient advocates. For those of you that don't know the story, Medicare is a relatively new rule, a new insurance, a new law that was passed in, in, I believe, 71 or 72. And when there were discussions about Medicare, a national health insurance for the elderly, the kidney patient organizations, not the kidney doctor organizations, decided that they needed to get that type of coverage because most insurance companies decided it was pretty experimental and they weren't going to cover it. And so the early patients were under a U.S. public health service grant that was about to run out. And so the kidney patients made, uh, he was the Senate finance head, he had public hearings where you could come and have, have your day at Congress. And so these were, and so these kidney patients, four of them went in and one of them dialyzed before the Senate, um, Senate finance committee to show that it wasn't experimental. And that turned the tide. They actually amended the legislation to add kidney disease patients, no matter their age. And so my husband, who was working at the time, an engineer, and he would go to D.C., he would make, you know, he he really showed early on. And he said, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing this for every patient that deserves a chair to sit in. And so when I interviewed him, he shared that, you know, the advocacy you have to do for any disease is that many patients don't raise their voice. They don't, they don't get heard. And so I suppose part of my role is to raising my voice to give voice to others. 
and I that stuck with me. And then I realized that his his can do spirit is something I'd like to synthesize for my patients. And then you know time transpired and we got married, and it, and and he always instilled in me that we need to volunteer, we need to give back to this community. So he was a home dialysis patient for 20 years. Um, and we would, new home dialysis patients for UTMB and Galveston would come to our house and watch how, how well, he did it because um, he was an engineer and liked to do almost everything himself. But, um, you know, caregivers. And so that's how I got into the advocacy side. And I'm one of the few people in the world that has been lucky enough to have a vocation. I'm in healthcare, and I ended up the last 30 years in just dialysis healthcare world. Uh, but I have a vocation and an avocation. I love helping patients with kidney disease and related diseases and advocate uh, for them when they either can't or help getting people together to advocate with unified voices. We'll come back right here on the Heart of Innovation. You know, I kind of want to hear the catalyst. I know we might digress a little bit, but I'd like to hear the catalyst for your husband. Well, before that, this patient turning into a possible love interest. So stay with us. Three years ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking. Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, do you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me. Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom of old age. Mine thought the pain was radiating from my spine. My doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal. Yeah, it turns out we all have peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD. It's plaque buildup mainly in the leg arteries causing poor circulation. For me, the diagnosis came too late and I lost my leg, but that does not have to happen to you. No, it does not because there are treatment options available if you're diagnosed early enough. PAD peripheral artery disease. If you've been experiencing leg pain, leg cramps, or neuropathy when walking, and your doctor isn't hearing you, we are. We are the way to my heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients, and we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.org or call our LegSaver hotline, 415-320-7138. Your life and limb could depend on it. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. We are talking to Dialysis Access Solutions President and patient advocate Terry Litchfield, who has committed her life to advocating for patients with chronic kidney disease and related diseases such as peripheral artery disease. Before the break, we started hearing her story and how she started getting immersed in chronic kidney disease and 
her passion for advocacy. And it really came down to her husband and and fighting alongside him and his passion for advocacy that came long before he even met Terry. Terry ended up meeting her husband because she was working for the National Kidney Institute and was trying to put together her master's thesis and he was one of the patients that she was supposed to interview, but she had a hard time trying to find him. And when she finally did, she was drawn, Terry, I assume you were drawn to his passion. But I'm curious how that passion turned into a marriage. You know, you can find someone, they could be passionate about what they're doing, passionate about advocacy. But what was the catalyst that truly turned him from from just a patient that you were to interview to a love interest, someone that became your lifelong partner? Well, I I tell people all the time, you never know when Mr. Wright is in the wrong place. And so when I met him, I loved him. I just loved his spirit for life. But then he he had what I always considered the weakest pickup line in the world. When when we met in person, because we had multiple phone conversations, when we finally met in person at a kitty meeting, he said, oh, I know your brother. And, and I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, you don't know my brother. And so, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, I do. And I'm thinking, no, he doesn't. He was cute. I went home after the meeting and uh, I live with my brother. And so I came back that, that Sunday night after a few days in D.C. And then the phone rings, and then my brother hands me the phone. I'm thinking it's one of my brothers or sisters. And he said, I said, who is it? He says, it's Bill Litchfield. I go, you know him? And in that smallest of worlds, uh, they were both engineers in the oil and gas industry, and they did know one another. Oh, and no so, way. So what Bill would do is he would come and visit my brother in New Orleans, and he would always want to talk kidneys with me. And, and then it progressed such that I realized that his dialysis didn't matter to me, that what, who ma- what mattered to me was him. And so we, we were married over 30 years. And so, um, you know, considering, you know, you don't, you don't ever know how long somebody's going to survive. Um, and one of the early doctors told me, don't let dialysis be the reason you don't marry him. Um, we don't keep that date book. We don't know when the end of our life is going to come. Don't, don't let that be the barrier. And, and I just jump right in and, that's, you know, how he, he would tease me and say, yeah, I got a trophy wife. And <laughs> he would then, and I would smile and be all excited. And then he'd say, I'm not quite sure what the trophy's for, though. And so we tried to keep everything um, really fun, but also, you know, we had some serious things, but we used humor a lot. And the three things that Bill attributed his to his success was first of all family we had a big extended family and faith what your faith is having some faith and then his third was to really listen to what the doctors say and educate yourself about what you need to do to stay the healthiest you can be with whatever disease you have what is the most incredible memory that you have of an impact as of 
both of you together as patient advocate powerhouses on your effort in fighting for those with CKD? That's a hard question, but I, I have to say what what really does um, hit my memory was working together um, to help develop and create and build Camp Cullen, a dialysis patients for kids on dialysis. Oh, wow. Because advocating, people don't often think about a child on dialysis yeah. and what they need, even if they get a transplant. Um, and so we did that together. And then in, in later years, when I went to work to start a, a company, Lifeline, um, that, that did care for patients' dialysis access, he was very instrumental in being the voice of our patient. Everything from helping us decide which chairs in the waiting room were going to be comfortable. And what we, it gave us a groundedness at a, at a company level. That if we wanted to do something for our patients, if we wanted to do something for Bill, he was our any patient, that we were going to do it for everybody. And if it was something we weren't going to do to Bill, we weren't going to do it to anyone. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's that you know humanness and that partnership that we had that allowed me to have a much better patient advocacy focus, patient satisfaction scores and engaging patients and patient uh, committees. So he was one of the first patients that got, when he went to in-center dialysis, um, getting the dialysis centers. Now they're, I believe they're required by the networks that you have a patient advocate on each shift so that, you know, that you can, you can really change. You can change the progression of how um, a patient is taken care of. And what happened after Lifeline? Is Lifeline still around? They still are. I retired um, when even at Lifeline, uh, probably about 15 years ago, when peripheral artery disease treatment um, started being performed outside of hospitals in special specialized office surgical settings or ambulatory surgery centers. Um, we studied it because... I just can always remember the trauma of amputations. And then each year in the U.S. Renal Registry, they report the number of patient deaths and and the causes. And so it continued to dwindle our dialysis patient numbers. And so that's when we really started working closely with the peripheral artery disease experts as well as, um, you know, the related, the vascular surgeons and the podiatrist and the nephrologist to try to have a more holistic approach toward both recognizing and diagnosing PAD in the dialysis patient or the new dialysis patient and treating it, treating it um, aggressively to avoid amputations. And that was through Lifeline? We had Lifeline and we had um, there's a, a coalition called the Cardiovascular Coalition. Right. And they sponsor things like uh, PAD Awareness Month activities, September. And um, they we work t- together with the Society for Interventional Radiology on Legs for Life programs. 
that were public screening programs? Because, you know, everybody in America knows about a heart attack. You know somebody that's had a heart attack. But what you don't realize is that peripheral artery disease, when you get a total blockage in a leg and critical limb ischemia, that's a heart attack of the leg. Yep. And and this it's the most serious disease that we have with outcomes worse than many cancers that nobody knows about. So I'm very happy to hear you asking. I'm curious on the year. When did you start seeing this um, correlation between the two? Because that was back when you were with Lifeline. So that was quite a while ago. Well, it was probably 2008, 2009. Okay, that wasn't that long ago. Okay. No, no. So, you know. um, You went on. You you retired. I don't consider you retired, but you retired from that company. But you went on to also have a relationship with Davida, a dialysis center. Well, Davida well. Davida actually bought Lifeline from Baxter. That's and what so I was going to ask. We were okay. a, a we were a business unit. They aren't any longer, but we were a business unit of Davida. And so, gotcha. when I was at Lifeline and we were part of Davida, Davida started. Um, a foot screening program called Step Ahead. And so Mm -hmm. we were able to uh, advocate, and then that was at a time when we were developing certain advanced centers that could actually do um, diagnosis, screening, diagnosis, and treatment um, in our centers. And in the heart of innovation, we're going to find out why these centers are no longer doing these foot screenings on a regular basis. So stay with us right here on the Heart of Innovation. Medical Notepad, brought to you by Abbott and The Way to My Heart. This week, interventional cardiologist Dr. Thomas Chu is talking about the formation of blood clots in patients with blocked arteries in mainly the legs, known as peripheral artery disease. Let's talk about peripheral arterial disease first. That would be what I would describe primarily as plaque formation or atherosclerosis in the lining of the blood vessels. So that's a different process than blood clotting, but their blood clots do relate in some way. So I want to explain that a little bit. But what you have is what used to be a smooth lining of the blood vessel. Like if, if I took an artery and I ran my finger over it, it would be smooth like an ice skating rink when it's young and healthy. And over time, because of all the mechanical stresses that uh, the artery is subjected to, plus other risk factors like cholesterol level, smoking, uh, high blood pressure, other kinds of things. You can develop irregularities of the lining and this development of this gooey stuff that we call atherosclerosis that forms narrowing of the blood vessel. And that narrowing may be silent for the most part, but eventually over time can cause a reduction in the blood flow. So you can have this problem of PAD without any kind of blood clot whatsoever. Now, on top Mm. of that, you can have slow blood flow because of the atherosclerosis as well as the injury to the lining of the vessel. And for the reasons that I explained earlier, the blood flowing through it may also form clots, which are more of the deposition of this like uh, uh, jello-like blood clot that can take a vessel that was partially occluded and turn it into fully occluded. And we've had situations where uh, a patient comes in with an 
abrupt reduction in blood flow in their leg. And we, we call it a, a so-called cold leg scenario. And that's more of an emergency. That's somebody who, if we don't restore blood flow to the foot within hours, they could potentially have permanent injury uh, to the tissues of the foot or even lose their foot because of gangrene and, and other kinds of uh, situations. So when somebody has, quote unquote, their vessels cleaned out, and that oftentimes could be with a stent or with an atherectomy procedure or balloon procedure, we may restore flow. But if it closes off again, that could be because of regrowth of tissue, scar tissue or, or atherosclerosis, or it could be all of a sudden because of a blood clot. And those are two different kinds of things that the patient might feel the same way depending on the mechanism. But how the doctor treats that could be very different. With this week's medical notepad, that was Dr. Thomas Tu, interventional cardiologist. Remember, the advice and views offered in this series are for informational and educational purposes only. Always talk to your own healthcare team before acting on any advice or information offered here. If you do want more information about blood clots, go to thewaytomyheart.org. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Dr. John Phillips is still heads down and helping to save some piggies over there at Ohio Health. He told me beforehand he had a very complex case. He wasn't sure if he was going to get here in time, but he is going to try. So we're still waiting. We only have another one more segment left. So crossing our fingers, he can at least jump in and say hello. But if not, we are going to continue the conversation here with an amazing guest. We have Terry Litchfield. She is the president of Dialysis Access Solutions, and she's a patient advocate as well. Before the break, we were talking about how Davida ended up buying Lifeline, which was a company that she founded um, long ago. And they had these foot screenings for PAD, but we don't see those happening on a regular basis anymore. And so I wanted to hear the story from Terry. Um, what happened to them or has anything happened to them? Well, um, so both the the biggest, uh, Davida and Fresenius actually were doing foot screening programs to try to identify patients at risk. And uh, during the pandemic, we saw a real decline in the ability to do foot screening due to sh- staffing shortages. But also, um, there were sometimes raised issues of infection control if patients had foot infections. And there was, frankly, not a lot of uh, opportunities in the pandemic to get patients with um, subacute uh, PAD actually seen places. And so I have recently heard that the, um, you know, now that staffing levels are getting back up in dialysis units, uh, that that the foot, and they're not really foot screenings, they're foot checks. They, um, because the government um, actually regulates what you can do in a dialysis unit. And if it's a Medicare patient, there are certain things that the government allows to be done in the conditions of coverage under the monthly, um, pay, the, the payment that the dialysis units have. And despite 80% of the patients at risk for PAD, um, foot care 
foot exams and PAD treatment is not um, in the in the bundle for for ESRD. Um, you know, in the in the the world of regulatory, there are a lot of things. We are very blessed. Uh, very few countries have national coverage of dialysis, um, and so uh, the bigger players have really stepped up to try to try to identify uh, foot problems. And so um, we we expect to see. I've I heard just recently from Davida and Fresenius that they're getting ready to publish some of their results on what they found on the foot um, foot screens that they're doing. But uh, they are limited somewhat by um, the ability to do things outside of the bundle. That's what they call it in the dialysis center. And so these are patients that, you know, have so many diseases. Um, it's really hard. And then, honestly, some of the logistical that are resolving now, but when you are short-staffed um, in a dialysis center, um, you you may not have the staff available to take shoes on and off and do a foot check and put the shoes back on. So, um, but I'll keep, what I will do is try to get you an update so that we can share to all the listeners out there how how is it going. Because you would hate to think that somebody on dialysis um, a lot of the diabetics have a condition called um, neuropathy of their feet. So they, they may not be able to feel their feet. Mm-hmm. So they may not even know nope. that they have a wound on their foot. And I can remember several patients in California. One was a gentleman. We were doing foot checks, and there was a roofing nail in the heel of his foot. A oh, roofing no. nail. And it was a heavily calloused, and I said, oh, my goodness, doesn't this hurt? He goes, I haven't probably felt my feet in about five years. And the doctor that was along with me said he has a severe diabetic neuropathy, and he can't feel it. And so there was a wound, and you could see see the, the roofing nail. Um, and, of course, he got sent straight away for a vascular referral because there was a wound that, you know, and, and I asked, of course, I was a bit naive. I said, well, you didn't see it. And he was, he was a rather heavy fellow. And he said, right. honey, I haven't seen the bottom of my feet probably in 25 years. And so, it, you know, it, he didn't know he should be looking at his feet. Um, and so there were, there were also yeah. some, sometimes we would take shoes and socks off and um, I can remember in a younger man, um, he had a gangrene of his heel, um, had no idea that he had um, he had gangrene. Now, I had a patient that came to me and and said, hey, my, um, you know, my wife said that, you know, I, I, I have this, you know, something on my foot and she found your website and um, we don't know what it is. And it really smells and I was like, uh, you have what gangrene time to go to the emergency room? I mean, he was like, I just, I didn't feel it. I had no idea. And he's like, I wear socks all day. Then I even wear socks to bed because my feet are, are my legs are cold. And, you know, so they do need to have regular checkups. And I'm curious in, in terms of your experience, if it's not the 
um, the responsibility of the dialysis center, whose responsibility is it? Or how do we give the responsibility to someone other than the patient to require foot checks of every single dialysis patient, especially, especially when it is these amputations are so prevalent? So that's that's really where between the dialysis centers uh, stepping up, but also um, the kidney programs have now um, created these various um, what they're calling value-based care programs right. where there's a much more holistic approach to patients. And so you have really exciting things happening like um, over in San Diego at Balboa Nephrology, they're actually pilot testing screening of all of their patients through a, a relatively uh, new device um, because um, to make it easier and more accessible for patients. So, you know, you have these pockets of innovation emerging uh, because these diseases are so conjoined. So what are you involved in now? It sounds like you have your your fingers in a few different pots here, all, you know, with the same mission, the same goal. Can you share some of what you're working on with us? I, I'd be happy to, because one of the things at Lifeline that I had the pleasure of working with was the, were the research studies. And so um, first in man or new to man. And so I've always been excited about new things. And so... Um, a few years ago, when I was still at Lifeline, um, we had the pleasure of working early on at a, at a center level, research level, um, with uh, the ellipsis percutaneous fistula creation for access device. And that really spurred me on to look for other things uh, that are innovative. So now, a lot of other projects where people um, ask, I always want to be their patient advocate always, but also just looking at the new stuff coming down the pipeline. And I think that's what's what's most exciting is in our conversation that we had prior to this, what made me most excited that uh, you were so up on the advances in technology and treatment options, especially for PAD. It was blowing my mind to hear you just be able to, you know, to hear the, off the tip of your tongue the, the terminology on pedal loop reconstruction and retrograde approaches to to um, being able to revascularize these patients and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, have you ever been in one of the procedures? Um, oh, in yes. The you have. Many, many, many. So, yes. Is to there see- one that stands out the most to you in, in terms of the experience and outcome? Yes. There was one where the patient came in where the leg was cold. It was gray in color and went in and the doctor said this, and it was a very, very strict lesion. And then he opened it. Patient went to recovery. And of course I went to go see the patient in recovery and the leg was warm and pink and there were pulses. And I knew in my heart, I'm not a clinician, But I knew in my heart that that wound that was very ugly to look at was going to heal because his leg was alive again. Isn't that the most rewarding thing? That was what really inspired me to transition from journalist to activist, in a sense, or advocate. 
um, for these patients because seeing, you know, that moment and where that patient has gone from, I can't walk, I'm in a wheelchair, to suddenly they're able to walk out on both of their feet without any sort of pain. It is just the most incredible moment um, to actually witness and be a part of. And coming up right here on The Heart of Innovation, we're going to hear Terry Litchfield's final thoughts and what's next for her, so stay with us. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I just got off the phone with Dr. John Phillips, and he just got out of his case. It was a success. He was able to save the piggies of his patient, and he's texting with me right now, and he's finishing up uh, the paperwork, and as any clinician and physician knows, that paperwork is long and tedious, especially after a procedure. So he won't be joining us this show, but thank goodness we have Terry Litchfield. She is the president of Dialysis Access Solutions and incredibly powerful patient advocate fighting for life and limb for those with chronic kidney disease and other comorbidities, including peripheral artery disease. Terry, thank you so much. Before the break, you were talking about your experience. You've actually been in the cath lab for these limb-saving procedures like I have, and it's been incredibly powerful. I'm curious from your experience and being in the cath lab, being with these patients, being on the front lines, what is some advice that you have from your journey that you would share with CKD patients and PAD patients to help advocate for themselves for better life and limb-saving care? Yes. Uh, the first thing, I tell every patient to get a notebook. It can be a regular notebook. And write down the questions you have before you go to your doctor. That way, you get your questions answered. And do as much research as you can, or have a son or daughter, somebody, research your disease and know your treatment options. Ask for education. Ask for educational materials because you want to be as informed as you can. And you're, if your patients are not doctors, find your voice. Don't be afraid to ask the question, particularly about treatment options. And if you're a diabetic, for example, it's really important that you have your foot checked regularly. And you need to get your loved ones to help you check your feet, see if there are any blisters or sores that you may not be able to see. Uh, but take, be engaged, be informed, be educated. And that all leads to your being empowered for whatever disease you have. Were there any questions that you developed along the way that you now say, oh my gosh, I'm not going to let any of my chronic kidney disease patients leave the room with their nephrologist before they ask these questions? Well, there, there are a couple of them. For example, one of my pet peeves is um, a, a physician or any provider asking, 
you know, giving them a diagnosis, a serious diagnosis for the first time. And then they rattle a few things off and ask, do you have any questions? Well, guess what? The answer is no. They don't know what questions to ask. And so I will always tell a patient when they are faced with that, turn that around and say, I don't really know what questions to ask. Please ask for the questions I need to know and give me the answer. And so you sometimes have to coach them to be able to be vocal enough and to to also do it respectfully. But the truth is, is many patients don't know what questions to ask. No. And, and that's why, you know, with the weight of my heart, we help a patient prepare for all appointments. And I don't care what it is. If they're in our system and they have PAD, I'll even help them with critical questions to ask their, their nephrologist or their primary care physician or their cardiologist. And we work on making sure that we have their story together and some critical questions to bring along the way. But I love your idea to say, well, you know, doctor, what questions and also along with that, what questions are, do patients not ask you that they should, which will help to improve their prognosis, which I think could be helpful. Terry totally. Litchfield, we really appreciate your time. With, what website can people go to to find out more and to hire you as an advocate for that? Okay, it's www.dialysisaccesssolutions.com. Thank you so much for all you do. We appreciate all of your effort in helping to save life and limb. Thank you. You've been listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real-time support, and high-touch advocacy in partnership with thewaytomyheart.org and Abbott. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. The Heart of Innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room. This show is distributed by the Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and content, visit theinnovators.network. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.